little bit from your memoir, from your bit reading the mess backwards. Sure. Um, so this is, I'm going to read a, a page or so from the early part of my memoir, kind of talking about realising I was trans at the age of 30 and then looking back at my childhood, trying to sort of see were there any clues there of what was to come. Um, and this is from a chapter called Reading the Mess Backwards. A trans baby at 30, a laggard, a latecomer at the party, someone who'd sheltered inside my assigned role of woman for decades before finally coming to my senses. But although my transness only surfaced well into adulthood, this wasn't the beginning of my gender trouble. That had a far longer history. From the beginning, gender equaled heartache for me. It was the place where I was forever flailing, teetering on the edge of failure, a mess I carried around in my skin. Woman was an ill-fitting costume I hadn't yet realised could be removed. Looking back, vision sharpened by new insight, you could say that the transness had been there all along. You could say I'd been born that way, only I didn't have the words to know it. Was I a woman for three decades, or was I never a woman at all? When I'm ten or so, my brother appears shirtless at the dinner table. Ever the eager disciple, I follow his example without second thought. It is a sweltering January day, and our bodies are salt-crusted from the beach. Clothing seems cruel in these conditions. As my brother tucks into his schnitzel, tanned chest gleaming, I grow conscious that the mood has become strained. Across the table, my parents exchange glances. The midsummer cheer of recent evenings is on hold. I look down. Two small nubs peek from my ribcage, barely the beginnings of breasts. My torso is white and soft, a reptile's underbelly to my brother's hard, brown exoskeleton. I realise this chest of mine does not belong in public. It is somehow obscene, something to be hidden rather than flaunted. My brother and I differ in this crucial respect. Excusing myself, I flee upstairs and don a T-shirt. Back at the table, there is a palpable sense of relief. Chatter resumes. All is well with the world. When I am 11, I cut my hair. The yellow river that poured down my back is snipped onto the white tiles of the David Jones Salon. It's a massacre of blonde. In the mirror, a new person emerges. Strong jaw, sceptical gaze, broad cheekbones no longer softened by a golden mane. Nothing feminine to see here. Here I am fresh from the chrysalis of girlhood. On the way out of DJs, Mum and I browse the children's clothing section. In the boys' section, the racks of navy blazers speak of an entire world. A world where urbane flaneurs stroll around some nameless European metropolis. I want one. I fondle the silk lining, inhaling its promises. Here is all I cannot have. And I'll end there.
So thank you very much for sharing that, Eve. That gives you all a little, little tidbit of what kept me awake several nights, gripped with the book because I couldn't bear to go to sleep because it was just so compelling, <laughs> despite the fact that I had to lecture in the morning, so apologies to my students. Um, and re-listening to that, I'm struck by some of the parallels that, of the, ch the early childhood transformation, the massacre of the blonde hair, and your later reference to your deep dive into Instagram and to Transformation Tuesdays and to sort of seeing the before and after picture of many other trans people and sort of freeing you from preconceived notions about what the after needs to look like and how many different types of trans there can be and the sort of gatekeeping that often occurs around what you need to be or do or look like to be a real trans person. Could you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, you know, when I came out as trans, I didn't really know any trans people at the time. So I was just kind of hungry to find my community, find models of who I could be and what I could become. Because, you know, I knew I was not a woman, but I didn't know what I was. Um, you know, I didn't know if I was a trans man or a non-binary person or genderqueer or, you know, something else altogether. So, um, of course, I went onto Instagram <laughs> to, uh, to learn everything I could. Um, and I just, you know, did really basic things like kind of put in search under hashtags like trans man or non-binary and found this whole world of kind of trans influencers and their accounts and to try and, you know, find a map for, you know, the way forward for me. And there's this kind of subculture of trans Instagram called Transformation Tuesday where people often post like before and after photos of their transition. It's kind of like, you know, those weight loss photos we've all seen a million times of like the before and the after. It's kind of like that, but for being trans. And I think I got a few things out of that. Like one thing was that I was really struck by, you know, because I was looking at people who were assigned female at birth who transitioned to become, you know, transmasculine or trans men normally. And so I had this preconceived idea that to be a transmasculine person, you had to have known it from a really young age and always been a tomboy and didn't want to play with Barbies or dolls, like all those things I had loved to do. I mean, I love to play with Barbies. Um, and then I saw these before and after pics and all the before pics, a lot of them were so hyper femme. You know, these were kind of, a lot of them were North American and these were kind of people who dressed up like the prom queen and, you know, had big hair and makeup and then they transitioned into someone who was very, very masculine, you know, and could pass as a cis man. And that was really liberating for me because it made me realise, oh, that there were other people like me. There were other trans people who'd had this hyper-femme stage. That was okay. It didn't make you any less trans. Um, but then there was also this kind of wonderful spectrum of possibilities of what I could become. That, you know, I could, uh, you know, I saw modelled for me that I could be not a woman, but I didn't need to kind of renounce all femininity or flamboyance. I didn't have to become this really doer, serious, manly man um, to be taken seriously as trans. You know, I could wear ridiculous red boiler suits and gold sneakers um, and be quite kind of camp or flamboyant and that that was a kind of possible gender expression. So, you know, even though I'd be the first person to say that social media and Instagram have a lot of problems with them, um, I think, you know, for me and for many members of marginalised communities, they're lifesavers because they allow us to find our tribes 
and find maps of who we could become. Because, you know, trans people, we're only a couple of percent of the population. There's not great data on this, so we don't know exactly, but we are a small minority. So, you know, it is hard to meet people in real life. Um, it was hard for me in Melbourne, and it can be even harder if you're in a regional community. So, yeah, online spaces are a real lifesaver. Great. Thanks for that. Um, so, speaking of online spaces, uh, something that you mention in your memoir and something that I unfortunately hear a lot in sort of day-to-day -day interactions with people is this misconception, this misconception that you know, gender-neutral pronouns, non-binary identities are, uh, you know, some invention of woke millennials who spent too much time on Tumblr. It's some super modern thing, <laughs> you know, using the singular they as ungrammatical and, oh, I don't object to it. It's just that it's ungrammatical and my grammar purist. Um, how would you answer those <laughs> Well, I'd say they're just wrong. Um, <laughs> So I, I changed my pronouns as part of my transition. So I use they, them pronouns. Um, and as Matt's alluded to, you know, I got a lot of pushback. I still get pushback from people who say, you know, that's fine. I respect your gender identity, but, you know, it's just grammatically incorrect, the singular they. Or it's, you know, it's this new woke invention. And, I mean, there's a few ways to respond to that. The first is the singular they has been used in the English language since Chaucer. So it has a pretty you know, long history since you know, before the evolution of our modern English, the singular they has been around. You know, we can find it in Shakespeare, we can find it in Jane Austen. You know, all these canonical you know, English texts use the singular they. We also all use the singular they in everyday life without realising it like when we're not talking about trans or non-binary people. So I'll give you an example I often use. Imagine you're in a cafe and you notice that someone has left a phone on the next table. And you know that phone belongs to an individual person, but you don't know that person's gender. So you'd probably say something like, oh, someone has left their phone. They left their phone behind. You wouldn't say he or she has left their phone behind. You would say they, because you know the phone belongs to one person. It's a singular they, but you don't know their gender. Um, or you might, someone might say, oh, there's a phone call for you. And you might say, what do they want? You know some, one individual is calling you, but you, again, you don't know their gender. So it is embedded in everyday speech already. We, know, we all know how to do it if we're English speakers. Um, so there's no real reason why we can't apply it to trans and non-binary people who use they as their pronoun. I mean, of course, if you've known someone for a long time as he or she and they change to they or them, I mean, of course, there's going to be a period of adjustment because your brain is used to using a certain pronoun for them. But, you know, practice makes perfect. Um, <laughs> give it a go. Like, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, you know, we, we days are used to people making mistakes. Um, if we know someone's well-meaning and making a sincere effort, like, I don't think we really get offended. You know, we get offended when people don't make an effort because that's just pretty disrespectful. But if someone's, you know, got goodwill, we know that and we don't uh, get upset. And I think, you know, the other sort of response to, to Matt's point about, you know, non-binary people and, and days being this new woke thing is that... Um, 
you know, I'm a historian in my day job and I like looking to history on these things. And there's a really fascinating history in so many cultures around the world of people living outside the gender binary. In, you know, like so many indigenous cultures around the world, but even European and Western cultures, there's evidence of people living across time and space who were neither men nor women. That, you know, every, every culture has their own words and their own kind of concepts for understanding these different gender identities. But there's just abundant evidence that they existed. You know, they existed in First Nations Australian culture. They exist in Samoa, Samoa in the Pacific, where they have a concept called fafafine, which are people who are assigned male at birth, who live a kind of, have a feminine gender expression. Um, and even there was a fascinating piece of evidence came out of um, Europe recently, from about a thousand years ago, there was a a kind of um, a skeleton found in Finland and the archaeologists who found it were trying to work out, you know, was this a man or a woman? And they eventually actually concluded that it was probably what we today called a non-binary person because the skeleton had all these kind of... They were buried with all these bits and pieces and artefacts and clothing, which were kind of a mix of feminine and masculine connotations. And so the researchers actually deduced that this culture might have had a kind of a third gender category that this person belonged to. And also in, in North America, there's a whole host of um, kind of third genders or non-binary genders that often get called um, two-spirit. And I know Matt has a lot of expertise in that, so you might yes. want to talk so, to that Some topic. degree of expertise. So, yes. So being a cultural psychologist who I did my training in Canada... Um, in Vancouver on the unceded lands of the Musqueam Nation. And I had um, the great pleasure and privilege to work with some local Two-Spirit communities for quite a few years and to learn from Two-Spirit elders. One of my elders, Sandy, is one of the people who helped coin this umbrella term of Two-Spirit back in 1990 to give a sort of broad descriptor of the over 100 different specific identities that you find in different indigenous cultural groups throughout the Americas. So you have the Winkte among the Lakota, the Nadlehi among the Diné, uh, Buin among the Mi'kma'ki. Uh, there's lots of um, these, these very culture-specific identities, and so they coined this, this broad two-spirit term to describe uh, these identities you find among First Nations folks and the Americas. Um, and before having the privilege of working with them and exploring that as somebody who has indigenous descent on my mother's side several generations ago and the politics of navigating, having that heritage and seeing if I could claim that identity while looking like this, uh, I'm, I'm aware that I'm very white presenting and all the privilege that comes with that. Um, when I first started working with these communities, the whole idea of non-binary identities was so new and so novel to me that I had a bit of difficulty getting my head around it. And much like you said, I was one of those people who's like, well, the singular they is just ungrammatical. How could you? Uh, and my elders more or less gently disabused me of that notion. Um, and it really came to make a lot more sense to me because, oh, there's all these traditional teachings around this. It's been around for millennia. So this idea of it being this new woke thing 
uh, should just go on the garbage heap, that yeah. idea. So yeah, I mean, I actually come to think that, you know, when you look at the number of cultures around the world who have these, you know, more diverse expressions of gender, it's really like our current kind of Western idea that there's just two genders. That becomes the anomaly. That becomes the weird exception to the rule when you look at that broader human history. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, all right, now, what's the other one? Right. So going back to, um, you know, you mentioned that when you were younger, you liked playing with Barbies. You liked <laughs> doing some of the girly things mm. that, so that you didn't perhaps fit the stereotype of what a uh, trans person should look like. And as somebody who's trained in psychology, I couldn't help but bring up the, the role that, that my discipline plays in gatekeeping mm. what trans people are able to access in terms of gender-affirming care. The fact that you have to go to these specialists and jump through all of these hoops to prove that you have gender dysphoria, that you have this medical othering condition of, of being somehow unwell, and you have to be unwell enough to access the care you need, but not so unwell that you get further stigmatized. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the process you went through of, of navigating that and sort of playing the diagnosis game, as you put yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for a really long time, being trans um, was seen as a psychological disorder, and it was listed in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, in the same way that homosexuality was once listed in there. And, I mean, it's evolved a lot over time, and it's no longer like officially sort of deemed a psychiatric disorder, but that kind of history lingers and um, in the way trans medicine works. Um, so if you're someone like me who realises that we're trans and wants to get what's called gender-affirming care, which could mean a whole lot of things. It could mean going on hormone replacement therapy, or it could mean gender-affirming hormones, I'm sorry, gender-affirming surgeries. Um, you need to get permission from a psychologist to get those treatments. Um, and to do that, to get that permission, you need to get a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And that effectively means fitting, you have to kind of mould your own messy story into this really narrow box of what being trans looks like. So I went along in the early stages of my transition. I mean, at that kind of stage, I didn't really know what I wanted in terms of gender-affirming care. But I, I was interested and I kind of wanted to, to go through the process of, you know, having it available to me at least. So I went along to the psychologist kind of naively thinking the psychologist might give me some support and some help on, in this confusing, what a, what a crazy idea, <laughs> that the psychologist might help me. And what I quickly realised was happening, that I was being assessed according to a really rigid kind of um, diagnostic framework. Uh, whether I, you know, was trans enough to have gender dysphoria. And it's all really, like, rigid. It's, like, numerical. You get a number at the end of the process. And, you know, and so I was being asked these questions, like Matt alluded to. So, you know, what kind of toys did you play with as a child? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a silly person. I realised Barbies was not the right answer to that question. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, you know, I really like playing Warhammer with my brother. <laughs> Which was true. I mean, that wasn't a lie. 
but it was a selective truth. It was part of the story. So I had to kind of, you know, play up my, my you know, what tomboy aspects I had, saying, oh, yeah, love playing with my brother, owned a skateboard, cut my hair short, and, you know, kind of strip away the, the other sides of my personality. And, you know, I mean, as anyone who has been diagnosed knows, and many of us have been in various ways, it's a pretty dehumanising process. Um, you know, we're made to feel like a problem. We're made to feel like part of our identity is a problem. And so not only did I have to kind of hide core parts of my identity to get the diagnosis I needed, but then at the end of the process, it's this kind of weird ambivalent state that on the one hand, I was really happy that I got this diagnosis of gender dysphoria because I was like, yes, I won, I gamed the system, you know. <laughs> I, I, I got, you know, I got an A plus on gender dysphoria, I have a lot of it. Um, so that was, and that was kind of validating because it kind of helped qualm my fears about not being trans enough. But then on the other side, I was like, oh, but I've kind of just been given a psychological disorder. <laughs> like that's not normally good news, is it? Am I meant to feel sad about having this psychological disorder? Um, so it's a very, very kind of complex and, and upsetting process to go through. Um, and I've since, you know, having gone through that process myself, I've since become a really, really big advocate for what's called informed consent, uh, gender-affirming care, which some of you may know of. It's basically what it sounds like. It's just a trans adult who you know, can make an intelligent decision about their own healthcare and their own body through informed consent, like the way we all do about so many treatments. You know, the example we often use is, you know, say you're a cisgender woman who would like to have a cosmetic procedure like, you know, breast enhancement or, you know, having smaller breasts or Botox or any number of procedures. You don't need to get a psychological assessment to get that procedure. You just need to have enough money to pay the surgeon. So why is it any different for a trans person to want to modify their body to affirm their gender? They're both bodily modification processes that come with some risks because they're a medical treatment, but as adults, we should have autonomy over our own bodies. So um, I was really lucky to eventually uh, find a great uh, clinic in Melbourne called Equinox, which gives gender-affirming care for hormones. So I've been on testosterone uh, on that model for about a year and a half. Mm. But still, you can't get surgery onto that model. So I had what's called top surgery last year, which is essentially a double mastectomy. My breasts were removed and my chest was masculinized. And to do that, I had to get diagnosed with gender dysphoria for a second time, because my first diagnosis had expired. <laughs> it was out of date. So I had to go, you know, even though by that point I'd been out as trans for years, I'd written a whole bloody book about being trans, I still had to go through this process of being like, yes, I played with, you know, with trucks as a boy, you know, as a child. Yes, you know, I didn't like my breasts. You know, I had to kind of go through this farcical, you know, process of, of um, getting the diagnosis all over again. So it's a, it's a very silly in many ways and it needs to be reformed. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know you had to get the second diagnosis for that. Yes, it was very silly and very expensive, I might add. I mean, just as a coda for that, um, you know, one thing that really needs to change in gender-affirming healthcare is the cost. So the current model is 
we have to jump through all these hoops to prove that we're sick enough, that we're trans enough to desperately need this surgery, that, you know, we might harm ourselves if we don't do this surgery. But then the government's like, oh, so now you've proved yourself to us. Go and pay for it yourself. We won't actually help you pay for it. Or we will, but it's such... The Medicare rebate is so tiny, it's almost negligible. So for the gender, for the surgery I had, the top surgery, that cost me about $15,000 out of pocket, which is a lot of money for me as a middle-class person with an academic salary. You know, most, middle, most trans people are not, you know, earning the kind of comfortable middle-class salary I am earning. Mm. Trans people have incredibly high rates of underemployment or unemployment because of discrimination, which means it's hard for them to get jobs. So for a lot of trans people, that kind of, you know, 15 grand or even more for other surgeries is completely inaccessible. So not only do we need people to, you know, have treatment with informed consent, we need Medicare to fund these surgeries. Absolutely. And <clears throat> chiming in quickly as the psychology person, again, not to in any way diminish yeah, that. Yeah. That's hugely important. That's also something we see echo with a lot of other adult diagnoses. So mm. if you're trying to get an adult diagnosis of ADHD, which a number of my students recently have been going to seek, it's an enormous out-of-pocket expense yeah. that Medicare just barely covers. And it's something that you know, when I first moved to Australia five years ago, I was super chuffed to come somewhere with a proper healthcare system. And once I got permanent residency and got my Medicare card, I was so thrilled. And then as time goes on, I'm like, wait, it covers what percentage of different <laughs> And I not thought, dentists, you know, right? like this. Yes, apparently our eyes and our teeth don't count. So those need separate insurance. Uh, well, they just so. don't age. Like, yes, you just, yes. they just stay the same as right. when you're 20 for the rest of your life, right. obviously. So, so very much <laughs> agree with Eve that, you know, many parts of Medicare desperately need an overhaul to help people support, you know, to, to help support people just living their lives well. Completely, completely. Um, and then going back to, uh, you know, being such a, such a high achiever and having this, <laughs> this academic life, one thing you talk about uh, that's a particular challenge for people who've published so much, who've been out in the public sphere doing academic work is, your dead name is going to keep following you around and you still kind of need it to get your academic kudos, to get your credit, to be known for the, the really good work you've done over the years when, you know, the name and that identity may no longer fit, but you still have to kind of use them. Yeah, yeah, it's such a funny thing. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was, you know, this like very driven type A personality. So I channeled all that into becoming an academic. And I was, I was the unusual person who knew from the age of about 15 I wanted an academic career. So I spent my entire 20s in a library, essentially. <laughs> I, was, I was a great time. I was lots of fun. Um, and I, so I, I did work really hard um, to get this academic career. And, you know, in ac academia, we have this motto of publish or perish. So I started publishing really, really early. And I published under what people call their dead name or their birth name, which, um, you know, many trans people don't like sharing those names. Um, I'm happy to share it for reasons I'll explain in a minute. So mine was Anne, and it's in the book as well. So I'd published all these articles under the name of Anne. I had about 10 years of publications. And those publications were really the bedrock of this career that I'd worked so hard for. So when in... Um, Early, early 2019, I changed my name to Eve. I was in this really sort of funny situation that I was like, I really want to, you know, 
embrace this new identity, be Eve, get everyone to call me Eve all the time and kind of disavow and she's, you know, she's gone now. But also, I can't disavow these publications. Like, I need them for my career. Um, and so I've sort of just kind of had to come to this acceptance that some trans people can leave their, their dead name or their birth name in the past, but I can't. Like, it's just got to be with me forever because, you know, there's no mechanism to change the names on pre-existing publications, really. Like, some trans academics are campaigning for this, but it's sort of in its early stages. So, you know, I just have this weird CV where I've got 10 years' worth of publications under Anne Rees, then all of a sudden I switch to Eve Rees. Um, and, like, it is... It's a difficult thing in some ways because it means I have to constantly out myself as trans. Like, I can never just live undercover. I have to be very public about it all the time. And, you know, it means people automatically know my birth name and if they want to use that in harmful ways, it's in their you know, at their disposal. Uh, so it feels, it feels very vulnerable and raw. I mean, I've kind of made my peace with it now because... You know, unlike some trans people, I don't hate my birth name. Like, I, it was a name I liked and it served me well. Like, I'm very clear that that person no longer exists, but it doesn't cause me sort of active pain to see. I suppose my concern about this issue is more for all the other people in this camp, that I'm very conscious that there are so many trans people who, you know, have names in the public sphere, like we all do, that are hard to change. I was talking to a trans friend of mine only two days ago who just changed their name. And, you know, they work at a university as well. So they were like, oh, I'm in this, like, progressive, woke institution. I won't have any discrimination at work. And then I, yeah. <laughs> and then I saw them two days ago at an event. I said, oh, how, you know, how's everything going? And they said, actually, I'm having a really awful time because I came out at work and changed my name and my work point blank refused to change my email address, my work email, which had my old name. A university in Melbourne. And so, you know, this is someone who really doesn't want to have anything to do with their old name and they're expected to every time, the dozens of times a day they send a work email, to dead name themselves. Um, and they had to take out a work cover claim because their institution just point blank refused. So, yeah. This is a really, um, a really crucial issue for a lot of people. And again, I mean, to make the comparison to something that happens for cisgender people, you know, pe well, women, historically, when they got married, would often change their surnames. And institutions, banks, whatever, you know, we accommodate that. We see that as normal. So why can't we accommodate it when trans people change their first name? Well, that's a very apt and horrifying example, Eve. I can't believe that they would be that awful. Uh, my condolences to your well, friend. Yeah, and I may now say that even my own beloved institution of Latrobe uh, did take two years to change my email address. <laughs> two years. <laughs> I mean, they never said they couldn't do it, but it did did seem to take the IT department quite a long time to get around to it. Mm. So yeah. <laughs> Institutions cannot be particularly welcoming places, even though there's often a lot of rhetoric about, oh, we, we love diversity and inclusion in our institutions mm. when it comes down to these small day-to-day -day things. Yeah, they're uh, often not great. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, I have to say I've, I've seen a lot of things to support that. I was asked just a couple weeks ago by 
a colleague of mine who I've known for quite some time, uh, and as, you know, throughout their transition when we were grad students together, and I've followed their career quite closely, and they're in the process of applying for this really prestigious fellowship right now, so they asked if I could write them a reference letter, and I said, sure, and I sat down to it, and they're like, oh, by the way, please don't use my, the name that I go by in every day, because I'm worried how the committee's going to receive that, use this and these pronouns instead, and I'm like, you want me to what? And they're like, yes, I still identify as this and this, but for the purpose of this, I know who's on that committee. I don't want to push the envelope too much. So I essentially had to misgender and dead name them in the letter at their request so they could hopefully get enough money to support themselves throughout the rest of their studies so they're not on the edge of poverty. So it was... And they're like, yeah, this is just this is just everyday life here. This yeah, is what we have to just, deal with. Yeah, the accommodations people have to make to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a toll, like, it, you know, to constantly have to hide your identity, to get all these kind of subtle, paper, like, small paper cuts over time that say you don't belong, we don't respect your identity, even though it can be easy to shrug off at the moment, in the moment, as a necessary survival strategy or just pragmatic things to do to survive. Those paper cuts build up, and, mm -hmm. you know, after over time, it can feel like you're just kind of one big bleeding wound. Absolutely. And... One last thing that I wanted to discuss before I open things up to the audience for, for their questions is um, towards the end of your memoir, you talk about how you're speaking with one of your therapists about these, you know, this death by a thousand cuts, the everyday yeah. things that you're dealing with and the fact that it sometimes makes you really angry and you're like, oh, but I should just get rid of my anger. It's not healthy. It's toxic. And your therapist says, no, <laughs> anger can actually be a really useful tool if used in the right way. Yeah. And as you explain, what the right ways look like uh, vary a lot depending on one's gender and race, that men are often seen as justified in being angry, especially white men, whereas uh, racialized peoples or people with different gender identities, um, their anger is often met with a very different response. And can you talk a little bit about the balancing act that's involved there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, as someone who'd been socialized as a woman and, you know, tried to do that very hard for a long time. When I'd experienced anger in myself, I had this kind of instinctive recoil from it, this like, oh, I'm not meant to be angry. Angry is this like distasteful, ugly emotion because, you know, we know that girls aren't meant to be angry. Um, and it was such a kind of light bulb moment, this moment with my therapist, because I made me realize that that's absurd, that, you know, all humans experience anger at various points. It's just a natural, normal human emotion. And very often it's justified anger because we live in a world full of innumerable injustices. But only some people's anger is allowed to be expressed. And, you know, white men's, white cis straight men's anger is often either rewarded as, you know, confidence and leadership and vision, or it's just kind of tolerated as, like, you know, boys just letting off steam. I was actually watching this incredible documentary last night, Woodstock 99, which was about the 30-year anniversary of the Woodstock Festival from the 60s. It came back in 1999 in America. And it turned into an absolute farce. Like, it was badly organised. And it just turned into a riot of, like, 200,000 mainly young white men putting, you know, pulling everything apart, lighting Burning. fires, assaulting people. There were all these rapes. It was horrific. But many of the commentators made this point that because they were the demographic they were, young white men, 
they didn't really face serious consequences. You know, the police did turn up, but they just kind of ushered them on. They were like, you know, come on, lads, you've had your fun and now it's time to go home. You know, imagine if that was 200,000 young black men. Imagine the kind of police violence that would have happened in 1999 or still today. You know, imagine if that was 200,000 Indigenous people or queer people or even women. You know, we'd be like, oh, these hysterical women, they've lost their dignity, they've lost their femininity, they're out of control. It would be a totally different narrative rather than just, oh, boys being boys, letting off steam um, by, you know, raping and pillaging. Um, and so I suppose it's just kind of led me to think about anger differently and to realise that, you know, my anger is healthy because there are so many injustices towards trans people that, you know, we've been talking about today. In many ways, as a white middle-class person, I'm insulated from the worst of them, but they still affect me and I still see members of my community that I feel deep solidarity with experience them to much greater extents. And it's okay for me to be angry and that is an incredible fuel. I mean, it was partly anger that fueled this book. Partly, um, Matt and I were talking earlier, I, I have a line in there that I was basically, when I came out as trans, I was so green when it came to experiencing prejudice from the world because I'd had so much privilege beforehand, you know, as someone who seemed cisgender and heterosexual and white and middle class. I had a really, really good time. And so I could sort of afford to be a bit oblivious to the injustices in the world. And then I came out as trans and started to experience more discrimination myself. That kind of gave me more empathy and awareness of discrimination that other marginalised groups face. And I was just so damn angry. I was like, I can't believe this has been going on all this time. Like, why is the world still like that? And I think, you know, that's really healthy anger and that we should all lean into it and use it to fuel whatever forms of activism and advocacy works for us. Absolutely. I mean... Anger is one of the, the core human emotions. It's a very normal response to injustice. And, you know, if you're seeing injustices everywhere you look and you're not angry, yeah, I would weird. argue that that, is, that indicates that something has perhaps uh, gone a bit wrong. So uh, really using that anger to push for justice, to push for equality, to push for a better world um, is, I think, one of the healthiest things you could do. So... Um, on that hopefully somewhat <laughs> uplifting note, I would really love to open Projective the floor anger. to yes, use your anger, make the world better, um, and ask questions, please. I think we have a roving mic yeah, somewhere. Yes, down there with the mic. Oh, that, thank you, Eve. I got so much from from the, the conversation with both of you. Um, as as a retired academic, I was taught by Bob Connell. Yeah. He then, of course, became Raywan Connell. Yeah. And I wondered um, if you could reflect on Raywan's um, legacy in some way. Yeah. Raywan Connell, for anyone who doesn't know, is um, one of the like is an Australian academic, but also internationally recognised as one of the world's leading sociologists. Is the discipline right? Yeah. Has done and continues to do incredible work in the field of sociology. And was also, you know, someone who came out as transgender, you know, many decades ago. And so he's an incredible leader in this space. Um, you know, I think one of the kind of the quirks, I'd say, of queer and trans communities is that we kind of often don't have as much kind of contact or respect for our elders as I think would be ideal 
for a whole lot of reasons. Um, you know, because people often come out when they're young and they sort of think they're the first person to come out and reinvent the wheel. And also because, you know, a lot of queer and trans people die when they're quite young or couldn't afford, weren't, you know, because of prejudice and discrimination or it wasn't safe for them to come out. Um, so there are relatively few, you know, prominent elders available to us. But, you know, it, all communities need elders and Ray Connell is such an incredible example and model for us who, along with other trans women of her generation, did so much incredible advocacy work um, in, you know, providing kind of safeties and norms that I take for granted. You know, like I've been complaining about the, the various injustices that still remain, but I'm also conscious of um, how much harder it was for people only a couple of decades ago. And it was people like Raywan Connell um, and also, you know, the people, the trans women, um, including Julie Peters, who set up, who I'm honoured to know, who set up Transgender Victoria in the 1990s, who really at huge risk to their own safety, um, did incredible things in terms of law reform and setting up support groups that, uh, that I and all trans people benefit from today. So, um, you know, we all need to have huge respect for the work that these people have done. And honour that even though, like, it's a tricky thing because sometimes older trans people, you know, they're of a different generation. They don't know the same kind of lingo or terminology or concepts that younger trans people use. And so there can be some intergenerational tension or hostility sometimes. But I suppose I'm really of the camp that, I mean, it's, it's fine if older trans people get the words wrong because they're of a particular generation and they did so much amazing work and we need to honour them um, for what they have done. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's a, a great um, dialogue. I appreciated it. I wanted to pick up on your... Um, when you put forward about having to constantly publicly out yourself mm. and how that has... Um, how do you keep yourself safe um, and how do you build strength from that experience every time it happens for you? That's a great question. I think... I gain so much meaning and satisfaction from being a publicly out trans person because I see how it helps others. You know, my, um, my book's been out for over a year now, so I've done quite a number of, you know, events um, and talks and met a lot of other trans people. And I see that it's meaningful for particularly younger people to see you know, an adult who is kind of out and proud and happy to talk about who they are and not be ashamed and not be afraid. And I suppose that reward so far outweighs the kind of constant vulnerability and exposure that comes with having to out myself constantly. Um, but, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't take a cult at all. Um, I suppose I do a mix of being very public and very out there and then I retreat. I, um, you know, I have really wonderful supports in my life, um, really supportive mother, really supportive friends, wonderful pets, and I kind of go back into that little cocoon um, where I can feel nourished and really safe so I can kind of go out and do it all again. But, you know, every day 
there are scary moments, you know, um, small things as using a public toilet. Um, you know, the vast majority of times, you know, I'm someone who drinks a lot of water. I often need to go to the toilet, <laughs> use public toilets. And the vast majority of the cases, there isn't a, like, all-gender or gender-neutral toilet available to me. So I need to use a male or a female toilet. And as a non-binary trans person, I don't really feel safe in either. Um, you know, I tend to go into women's toilets because they have more stalls and they often smell a bit better. Um, but, but I'm kind of, you know, particularly as I've been on testosterone for more time and my body is changing, every single time I think, is this going to be a day where someone's going to say, you in the wrong bathroom or attack me? Because, I mean, that doesn't, you know, I, that doesn't really happen to me often, but it does happen to a lot of trans people. You know, trans people get beaten up and abused just for going to the toilet and minding their own business. Um, so there is that thing of when you're in public, you're always a little bit on edge, definitely. Um, thank you for sharing so much of this. I mean, it's just been mind-blowing, and I've really been struck by how essentially one of my takeaways from what you're saying is that gender is, in so, is so much a social construct. It's yeah. something that we have just, you know, built. And so... As a woman, I can understand everything you're saying about the name change. You know, women change their names and we accept that that's okay. Um, about the way when you present in public. Um, as a Chinese-Australian, there's all these perceptions about how I should behave and about being angry and all those things. So I'm curious about... And pardon me if this is a very stupid question. I'm curious about the, um, the intersectionality um, in that term LGBTQI because mm. listening to what you've said today, it feels to me like when you talk about gender, you're talking about cultural constructs in the same way that we talk about what it is to be Chinese, what it is yeah, to be Australian. Yeah. Um, and so I really would love to hear you speak to the fact that trans issues are so often bundled in with um, homosexuality, lesbianism, um, bisexuality, is there, what is the common connector there or do you think that trans issues and, and the experience of being trans and in the trans community is something that's actually quite separate from that? That's a really good question, Amy, and there's a lot of ways to answer that. I mean, I suppose the, the first one is the kind of genesis of that bundling, or LGBTIQA+, um, which often just gets called queer, and I'm, you know, an umbrella term for the community, I mean, there's a sort of, I suppose, a historical reason that those different identities get bundled together in that, I mean, I suppose historically we were all the weirdos and freaks. <laughs> like, we were the people who were non-normative, that we didn't fit into, you know, white picket fence, white picket fence kind of marriage and babies normal society because of our gender or because of our sex. So we kind of lived together in communities on the margins of society. So we were kind of united by common prejudice, by common othering? That's one answer. The other answer is that the distinction we have today between sex and gender as being quite different things, like your sexuality and being gay is different to you know, your gender identity and being trans or cis, that's quite a recent way of thinking about these issues. Mm. For much of the 19th and 20th century, they were kind of conflated. Medical science had this concept of the invert, right? And that was like someone who was kind of all upside down. Um, so in both their gender and their sexuality. So someone who we, we would now call 
a gay man, right, would be called an invert. And the idea was not that that man's, you know, sexuality was the wrong way round, like that he was attracted to other men when he should be attracted to women, but that his gender was also inverted, that he was a kind of feminine, girly man. And so kind of gender and sexuality were kind of tied together in medical thinking for a long time. So that's kind of why... Um, you know, same-sex attracted people and transgender people have kind of been lumped together. Um, oh, there was a, a third thing I was going to say in response to that question, but it's just... Um, I've just lost my train of thought on that. <laughs> Can you say the last bit of your question again, if you remember? Uh, I was just asking about, yeah, do you feel because that, you would, that trans people... Oh, yes, yeah. Um, that that's, did remind me of the other thing I wanted to say. Um... For me, that grouping feels really natural. Mm. Like, I really love the term queer as an umbrella term because it just kind of, you know, connotes a kind of general non-normative weirdness in which, you know, a kind of large tent in which we can all kind of float around and do various things. Because I'm never really sure how to label my sexuality. Mm. Like, I, you know, I, for most of my life, I had relationships with men, but I've also dated women but I've also gone through phases of feeling really like asexual and aromantic and uninterested in all that stuff. So I'm never like sure, am I like, am I bisexual? Am I pansexual? Am I asexual? Who knows? I just like the word queer to, as a kind of umbrella term for my sex and gender because I can just kind of be a weirdo in boiler suits in a sort of indeterminate way. Um, but that said, I mean, I think it's important that not all trans people feel like that, that there are trans people who, you know, often particularly binary trans people, I'd say, who might kind of identify as straight in their sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who is a trans man feels very much like they are a man and wants to date women and sees their relationship with cis women as a heterosexual relationship. There are certainly those people who exist mm -hmm. and that's a valid form of living their life. And so, like so many things, there's kind of not a one-size-fits-all um, answer to that question. Thank you, Eve, and it's a fantastic um, opportunity to be here and listen to what you've gone through and that you're so open, so thank you. Excuse my stunned silence and um, rambling because it's always just like, oh, you've answered everything I have. I have to think of a question. Oh, my goodness. So my question is just, it just stemmed from the last one. Um, labels, they're an interesting thing. Some people find them really helpful. Some people find them really um, confining, I guess. So I guess what, what's your take on labels and are they helpful for you or are they just something that exists or are they hard to deal with? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it depends on the context. That's such a historian answer. It depends. It's complicated. Um, <laughs> in that, you know, as I said earlier in my talk, um, getting that diagnosis of gender dysphoria was, while in some ways it was kind of stigmatising and pathologising, it was also really empowering because it also made me feel like a real trans person it, um, and it gave me access to other things. That was a really useful label in many ways. And I do, you know, obviously I'm a very public trans person and I do use that label for myself and I really love it in many ways because... 
you know, I'm not a woman, but I don't want to go around saying I'm not a woman and I'm not a man. I want a kind of other word to define myself. Um, you know, on that note, I, I don't love the term non-binary because it's kind of defined, it's a negative definition. You're defined in relation to the binary. So even though I kind of use that word sometimes to help people get the fact that I'm not a man or not a woman, I like the word trans because it's just so open-ended. Like it's just a prefix that means across or beyond. It just means movement. It just means flux. And so it feels like a label that, you know, it's a label, but it doesn't pin you down. Kind of like in the same way as queer, there's a lot of space for movement and shifting and change within that umbrella label. So I love that in many ways. But then as a kind of counter to that, I'd also say, you know, there's a danger of people getting kind of pigeonholed by their label. Like I'm a trans person, but I'm also so many other things, as we all are. We all contain multitudes. We're all more than one identity. And we were talking a bit about this in the panel I moderated yesterday morning about, about diversity in children's publishing, that when you're a diverse person, as we say these days in what I think is a kind of odd turn of phrase, because how can one single person be diverse? Um, when you're a diverse person, you often just get, you know, stuck in that label that, you know, you're the trans person or the disabled person or the gay person or the Chinese Australian person or the First Nations person. And that can be really limiting and a bit objectifying because it's just not seeing the full complexity of a human soul. Um, it's just seeing a kind of narrow part of their identity. So it's complicated. Love trans, hate being seen as only a trans person. <laughs> Great. All right, so I think we're, we have time for one more? Yes. Great. Thank, thank, thanks for fitting yes. me in. Um, I've got so many questions, but I'll limit it to, um, I've got in the younger generation, a uh, whole range of queer um, younger nibblings and, 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 and nieces and nephews. And I struggle, as, an, as a new grandmother, huh? I feel the um, challenge of trying to, uh, speak to that with my grandchildren and I find myself very consciously calling the little Lego people they and them. And, Love it. And I'm just looking at where a lot of us are of an age yeah. and I'm wondering what, your, um, what you can suggest to us to assist in this gender binary that we have grown up in that we now have to try and challenge ourselves with with this tiny, younger generation? I mean, it sounds like you're already doing a pretty amazing job. <laughs> I don't think you need much help um, if you're calling Legos days. Um, I think just, you know, embed it in, in everyday play and conversation. Um, you know, there are so many great kids' books, like for, you know, all ages, like from picture books for really little kids right up to kind of YA fiction that have non-binary and trans characters and do a fabulous job of just, you know, making it a fact of life um, and, you know, making it age-appropriate. And, yeah, I think just in all, all forms of play, whether it's Lego or dress-ups or, you know, any kind of storytelling, drawing, just putting it out there as an option that, you know, this character could be a boy or a girl or it could be a non-binary person. There's just... Or it could be a genderqueer person or a trans man or a trans woman. You know, there's so many different options. And to see that as a kind of enriching of the play, that there's more, more things to choose from, more imaginative possibilities out there. I'd also say, I suppose, for, you know, for older people or anyone who feels a bit confronted by, you know, there's this whole new world of gender I need to learn about, <laughs> is to see it as 
like this is a gift for all of us. Mm. This is not just like something we have to learn to like be nice people or keep up with the times. I really believe with all my heart that realising the gender binary is false and realising that there are so many genders out there and we can all be whatever gender we want and express it however we want. I mean, we all stand to benefit from that, right? Because even people who are cis men or cis women and feel pretty comfortable in that identity, I mean, we all still get harmed by the gender binary and the really, really narrow way gender is constructed. You know, the way cis men are told, you know, you can't show emotions, you can't cry, you can't wear pink. All these ridiculous rules. Like, why the hell can't they do those things? It says nothing about their masculinity. And, you know, and for women, all the, like, you need to be, like, sexy but not slutty, you can't threaten men, need to do all the emotional labour, need to be skinny. Like, all these ridiculous rules that damage our lives in so many ways. Like, if we recognise that gender is just this construct and it's a kind of artificial binary that's imposed on us, we all have so much freedom and liberation and joy to gain from challenging that. So don't just question this stuff for the sake of queer people or the non-binary people in your life. Question it for you as well. Exactly. Just to super quickly piggyback on that, that was one of my favorite things in the memoir that you describe. It's better to, it's perhaps a good thing to think of gender as a playground as opposed to a pair of cages that we have to force ourselves into. And that, that challenging the binary really does help everybody. And understandings of what a real man is or a real woman is have been so variable over the years. They're so shaped by culture to begin with that. Mm. Why be constrained? Even a hundred years ago, pink was the boys' colour. Yes. Like, <laughs> so absurd. All these things are just made up. So climb out of the cage and jump on the swings. They have the play gender playground. Yes. <laughs> And I think that may be the perfect place to wrap up. Thank you all for coming, and please join me one more time in thanking our wonderful <laughs> author, Dr. Eve Reeves. Thank you. Thank you.